And Father, we have come to sit at the feet of your Son this morning and to behold his glory and to learn once again of the joy that you tell us about all through the Scriptures. We praise you for your past grace that reminds us of daily future grace. We praise you, Father, that no matter what our circumstances, you are here to relieve our anxieties and our fears, not artificially, but through your presence, O God. And so we pray, Lord, that I pray that whatever circumstance anyone in this room is facing, whether it has to do with their marriage or uh, their financial situation or a broken friendship or whatever it may be, maybe it's a stubborn habit, that today, Lord, you would help them to see the glory of Jesus and turn from their idols and fly to Christ and find in him all that you have promised to be for us in Jesus. Help us to see the joy that you offer us in Christ. Lord, these things we know can only come about by the work of your Spirit and your Word. And so, Father, protect us from error. May this preacher not get in the way of what your Spirit wants done this morning. But use your Word to accomplish much today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Psalm 16 today. Psalm 16. And let me begin by saying, if the Christian's purpose in the world is to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, then one of the means by which such proclamation is made is through our joyful suffering. I suspect that for many of us, joy is something that we appreciate It's something that we desire, but we may not consider it an essential virtue in our lives. We just hope that from time to time, we get a little joy out of this life. The Bible, however, casts a different complexion on joy. In God's mind, joy is not a throwaway virtue. It is essential to the Christian life. In fact, Paul names it as the second of nine fruits of the Spirit, The fruits of the Spirit are love, and what's next? Joy, and then all of the rest. Joy is essential in the Christian life. If you're a true Christian, then you have the Spirit of Christ. And if you have the Spirit of Christ, you have a supernatural capacity for joy, even in the midst of hardship, trial, and suffering. The Bible mentions joy and rejoicing well over 400 times, depending on on what version you're using, it will be more or a little less. Um, Say what you will about the Christian faith. Say that it is a call to salvation. Say that it is a call to repentance. Say that it is a call to obedience, but also say that it is a call to joy because it is always a call to joy. There is no joy on earth like the joy that flows from the fountain of relationship with God in Christ. And that's just the fact of the Christian life. It should be the normal 
Christian life. And so this morning, I want us to consider Psalm 16. Here is a prayer of one who knows the joy that the Word of God speaks of and commands. Here is the worshipful meditation of one who has discovered true happiness and contentment in this life. And here is a man who trusts in in God who inspires joy, not only about this life and in this life, but also regarding the life to come. Psalm 16 is a psalm of joy. Now, there are two realities that make this psalm especially relevant for us. The first reality is this, that all people seek their own happiness. Everyone seeks their own happiness. French mathematician and theologian Blaise Pascal considered the motives of men back in his day, 1600s, and he said this, all men seek happiness, there are no exceptions. However different the means they may employ, they all strive toward this goal. The reason why some go to war and some do not is the same desire in both, but interpreted in two different ways. The will never takes the least step except to this end. This is the motive of every act of every man, including those who go and hang themselves. It is a search to be happy. This point uh, hardly needs to be defended I would say only that in the scriptures, God frequently appeals to our desire for our own good, our own happiness, if you will, as motivation for obeying his word. Not the only motivation, but one of his inspired motivations for obedience to his word is an appeal to our own good, our own happiness. For example, in the book of Ephesians, Paul appeals to children to obey their parents, And think about his argument there in Ephesians 6, 1, which many of us parents taught our children before they learned John 3, 16. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Here's what he says. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So that's proposition number one. You should obey because it's right. But listen to the other half of it. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first command with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And so, the first reality, the relevant reality for us this morning, is that we all pursue our own happiness. And God and his word, just go back to look at the Old Testament law and the promised blessings he gives for those who obey. It was part of the motivation appealing to our desire, our God-given desire to be happy. And let me just say that God gave us that inherent desire. All men have it, I believe, so that we will discover its fulfillment in God. Because of sin, we go everywhere else. And this is the second relevant reality, that no one finds lasting happiness apart from God. Puritan pastor Stephen Charnock explains this reality with the following insight. He says, people tend to act as if something below God could make him happy without God, or that God could not make him happy without the addition of something else. Thus, the glutton makes a god of his pastries, 
And the ambitious man makes a God of his honor. The fleshly man makes a God of his lust and the covetous man of his wealth. And consequently, he esteems them as the highest good and the most noble goal to which he directs his thoughts. Thus, he dishonors the true God who can make him happy in a multitude of false gods that can only render him miserable. Look for happiness in money, and you will be miserable. Look for happiness in your house, and you will be disappointed. Look for for satisfaction in your health, and, oh, brother... Look for satisfaction in drugs, and you will be shamefully disappointed. Look for joy in in the acceptance of others, and you will become disillusioned very quickly. Solomon concluded, after all of his searching for happiness, vanity of vanity, vanity, emptiness of emptiness. All is emptiness, a chasing after the wind. And so it is. We look for happiness in all the wrong places. But this is not the experience of those who discover the fountain of joy that flows from relationship with God in Christ. He is the joy you have been looking for. He is the joy that you have been looking for. I love when God approaches Abraham in Genesis 15, and he's about to establish the Abrahamic covenant, and he says, Abraham, I am your very great reward. I am your very great reward. And so it is for the believer. Now, there are two major themes in this psalm, Psalm 16. David sings his prayer to the Lord and glories in, number one, the joy God offers in this present life, and number two, the joy God promises for the life to come. And before we dive into this, let's stand together and read the text. Psalm 16. This is a precious psalm when we were visiting at the, at the ER this week with Dana and Rodney when they were getting some uh, very, very difficult news. Um, this psalm, I knew I'd be preaching this. And it was, I told her, this is the perfect psalm for you right now. Thinking about joy in this life in the midst of suffering and the prospect of future joy when you see him face to face. Psalm 16, a mictum of David. A mictum is just a, a song, a kind of song. And here's what David says. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out nor take their name upon my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Psalm 16. And so first of all, we see in David the joy in this present life. The offer of joy in this present life, which David clings to. Not infallibly, if you know the story of David. David's story is our story. How we love God. We, we love God. We, we know the joy. We know something of the joy of being with God. And yet, this whole idolatry thing, we know that too. We know how easy it is to run to other things for the joy that only God can give. And so God promises joy in this present life, verses 1 through 9. Now, this would be interesting all by itself, but it becomes all the more intriguing when we consider the first words of the psalm, which don't sound like joy. Doesn't sound like he's experiencing joy. He says, preserve me, O God. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. This psalm is, first of all, a plea for help. David is pleading with God for help. He's in some kind of trouble. He's in some kind of distress. Something's happening in his life that's unpleasant. And we don't know what it is. I've read all the commentaries. Nobody has a clue. Well, they have clues. But nobody can be definitive on this. The psalm is, first of all, a petition for help. What could he be needing help from? Now, notice the word, preserve me. It may be translated, protect me or save me. And so it seems like David is facing a, a serious and fearful trial. Some say David's problem is old age, that he's coming to the end of his life, hence the comment in verse 10 about the grave. And so a number of preachers have preached this, and I think rightfully so. I think this is an appropriate take on the passage, that David is preparing for death, and this is how you do it. You focus on the joy that he's given in this life, the past grace, the present grace, to help you focus on the grace that's to come through the doorway of death. Some think that David is on the run from Saul, or perhaps even Absalom. We just don't know. David doesn't tell us what the struggle is, but that allows us to legitimately here insert whatever struggle you are currently facing. What struggle are you up against right now? It could be anything. It may be a fearful diagnosis from the doctor. It may be an intense struggle with someone you love or some misunderstanding. It might be financial. The problem might be your job or it might be division in, in, in among your friends or your coworkers or even in the church. Perhaps it's a strong temptation to sin and you just feel it all the time and you can't believe you've given into it again. And you want to battle it, and you just you run to God like you should, and you say, God, preserve me. Don't let this sin overcome me. Don't let this temptation, whatever it might be, overwhelm my faith in you. 
Well, no matter what your trial, no matter what it may be today, the question that this text poses implicitly is this. How does God want you to respond? David is showing us how to respond to trial. Now notice how David responds to trial himself. He decisively, in this moment of difficulty, he decisively bends his thoughts away from worry, away from anxiety, and toward the joy that he knows that he will find in his refuge, who is none other than God himself. Refuge, by the way, the word means shelter or protection from danger a place of security, a place of sanctuary. And there's perhaps no time that we long for happiness and joy more than we are when we are facing a, a difficult trial. We want relief. We want, we want the pain to go away. We want the tension to stop between you and that person you love who you're not experiencing much love with. We want our fears to subside, our sorrows to dissolve. We want our mourning to be turned into laughter. We might just want healing, and maybe it's not coming. You have to bend your heart. You have to take hold of your thinking and say, no, 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 why are you cast down, O my soul? I will not allow you to meditate on your suffering you must actively take hold of it and bend it toward the truth of Jesus Christ. He is your refuge. As Stephen Charnock alluded to earlier, people in trouble tend, however, to run to everything but God in search of happy refuge. You get a new toy. You get high, or you get sex, or you get money, or you get pornography, or you get... um, You get mega doses of entertainment. That'll nullify the pain for a little bit. But when you get these fraudulent saviors, you miss the refuge and the reward that has been promised to you by God and in God. But not David. Instead of fretting over his problems, he runs to the fountain of living water where he knows that his soul will be fully satisfied. Notice verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. And David's choice of words here is very, very intentional. He speaks of God in the exact same terms here as he does in Psalm 8. And you're familiar with Psalm 8. Preached that a few weeks ago. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He's using the same terminology for God here. He says, I say to Yahweh... You are my Adonai. And in Psalm 8, he says, O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name. See the pattern? David loves to talk to God like this, using his actual names. And it's harder for us to do that in English, but it's, it's easier because of the exact wording We sometimes miss the capitalization, and it's probably um, appropriately capitalized in your translation, but we tend to miss it. And so what does he mean when he says, Yahweh, my Adonai? Well, Yahweh is God's personal 
covenantal name. It is the name that God used on Mount Sinai. We've talked about this many times, right? God, who shall I say sent me when I get to Egypt and talk to the elders and say, I'm here as your redeemer. And they're going to say, who sent you? And you're going to say, what? I'm going to say, what? And God says, you tell him, tell them, I am that I am. I am has sent you. Jehovah has sent you. The covenant-keeping God has sent you. The personal God who has revealed himself personally to Israel and to no one else. He is the one. He is the one who is, who is about to enter into covenant with you if you will follow him. He is the eternal God who enters into covenant with men to save them and bless them and to claim them as his own. He is Jehovah, but he is not just Jehovah. He is Jehovah, my Adonai. Adonai refers to God as king and master and Lord. He is the sovereign ruler over all things. He reigns supreme over every planet, every star, every molecule in the universe. And by his hand of providence, he orchestrates every event of my life. And so when I was running behind yesterday trying to get down to... um, trying to get down to uh, uh, Granberry. Thank you. Somebody just mouthed that to me. Um, and, uh, and I got to a, a, a stoplight, and somebody in front of me just did not want to go. <laughs> I had to remind myself, Lord, I'm in your place. I'm moving at your pace. You know, that just brings rest to my soul. Usually it takes a couple minutes for that to sink in, <laughs> the adrenaline going. Listen, God is both. He is your Yahweh. He is the personal God who loves you. And, and, and he is, and you can think of it like this. He's, the gospel offers benefits to you. Like when Yahweh says, if you obey me, I will bless you. I will bless you. I will bless you coming in and you're going out. I'll bless your children. I'll bless your herds. I'll bless your flocks and your crops. But I am also Adonai. You see, the gospel has both parts. It has the benefits of the gospels and the demands of the gospel. You must obey me. I am your king. I'm not just your savior. I'm also your king. And I expect that you will follow me and do what I say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I tell you to do? Stop calling me Lord if you're not going to obey. He is Yahweh my Adonai. He is the covenant-keeping God who is also my king, my master, the one who providentially rules over every circumstance I face. And so for the person in trouble to remind himself that his refuge is no less than Yahweh and Adonai is to put a rock under his feet and a song in his heart because there is no problem so deep that God is not deeper still. There is no problem so complex that God can, can deal with it with the breath of his mouth, with the thought of his mind. Verse 2 goes on to show us David not only reminded himself that God provides safety, refuge, but that in the shelter of his refuge, his people are blessed by every good thing. He writes, I say to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. 
Here David flat out confesses, every happiness, everything that ever brought me any real joy and satisfaction in this life comes from you, O God. And this is not the only time David says such things. For example, in Psalm 36, he writes, How precious is your steadfast love, O God, the children of mankind take refuge, sound familiar, in the shadow of your wings, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the rivers of your delights. David loves to talk about God. It's the fountain, the overflowing fountain of blessing and joy. Now, that's the kind of refuge to which every man should run. Every woman, every child should run. He is the fountain of living water. And in Jeremiah, it's no wonder in Jeremiah's day, God was so upset at them, so upset that he would bring Babylon to take them into captivity, as he promised when he established his covenant with them. It was because, he says, according to Jeremiah chapter 2, they have turned from me, the fountain of living water, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The foolishness. And yet we're all fools. In the day of trouble, nothing on earth compares to the happy, joyful, satisfying fountain of delight that God is to those who will run to him. And then verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Isn't it theologically correct to say that when you truly love God, you will also love his people? And you will love sinners as well, in a different sort of way. But you will love God. If you love God, you will love his people. You will love your brothers and sisters. Um, This kind of points forward toward the end of the Bible, where the Apostle John in 1 John 4.21 says, and this is the commandment, here's gospel responsibility, right? This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Rejoice in God, yes. But let that rejoicing be, may you be a content, a a conduit of his grace and love to other people. Because David loved God, he loved all those who were rightly related to God. On the other hand, verse 4, he wanted nothing to do with those who rejected God. He says, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings I will not pour out or take their name upon my lips. This is interesting, isn't it? Because we looked at Psalm 15 uh, last time, and he says, um, here's here's a description of a righteous person. Um, In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Isn't it interesting that the compilers of these psalms put these two back to back? First he describes the righteous man, and then he shows us David being the righteous man, loving the people of God, and and really hating the evil that he sees in those who reject God. And so because God, because David loved God, he loved those who were rightly related to him, and he wanted nothing to do with those who ran for refuge to another God. 
He knew their idolatry makes them a direct target of God's judgment. They are, they are vessels of wrath if they don't repent. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm trying to exegete this text. And I understand that there is a love for of unbelievers that we should have that should drive us to taking the gospel to them. It's just David's not talking about that in this passage. And what he's talking about this and last week is we got to be so careful that in our loving of people that we don't blur the lines and we don't become unrighteous ourselves in an attempt to reach those who are unrighteous. Sometimes it's a delicate line. But for the believer, it should mostly be clear. But David knew the idolatry that makes them a target of of God's judgment. One day, each of them will have to stand before the true God and give an account for why they rejected him in favor of idols that promise refuge, but whose end is destruction. On that day, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But David also had a practical reason for avoiding such men. He said, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply, shall multiply. Or as Proverbs 13, 15 says, the way of the transgressor is what, class? It's hard. It's hard. Sometimes when I find myself counseling a person who is devoted to trying to find happiness and joy in all of the things, or many of the things that God has forbidden and, and things aren't working out. And so they come because their marriage is falling apart or they're, they're having problems with their children or they keep getting fired from their job or, or whatever it is. And they, they want somebody to fix the problem without, without imposing upon them any need of change. And, and whenever that happens, I just look across the table and throughout the session I'll say, the way of the transgressor is hard. If you keep transgressing, it's going to be hard. God's way is better. Those who run after another God, their sorrows will multiply. Don't you understand that this is how you're living? This is how you're living. You are, whether intentionally or not, makes no difference. You are rejecting God in favor of your idols. You're not living God's way. You're living your own way. And that's not working. It will never work. It will never work. The way of the transgressor is hard. The sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. Listen, God's way is not only the right way to live, it is always the best way to live. It's always the best way to live. David knew that God had irrevocably promised that he would care for him and bless him and watch over him, so he wanted nothing to do with the way of the wicked. In contrast to the idolatry of the wicked, David said, the Lord, Yahweh, is my chosen portion and my cup. Look at verse 5. Notice the contrast. There are these unrighteous who are running after other gods, and they're finding that it's hard, and they're going to continue. But verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Uh, there's a, a lot of debating about what portion and cup mean. I tend to think that portion refers to food. Um, like when Joseph 
was in Egypt. He's now prime minister after his brother sold him into slavery years have gone by. He, in God's providence, became the minister of, of Egypt, the ruling country of the world. And when his brothers, who sold him into slavery, come and Joseph finally reveals himself, or just before he finally reveals himself, he has them all sit down at the table. He had never in his life seen his younger brother, Benjamin. He was born after he had been sold into slavery. And so when it came time for dinner, he instructed his Egyptian servants, give all of my brothers their food, and when you come to Benjamin, give him five times the portion. Everybody else gets one steak. He gets five. You get one dose, a little blob of mashed potatoes. He gets five, you know. You know, he, you get one Coke. He gets five. You know, we've got to have a whole separate table for him. It's your portion. This is your portion. And he says, so I think he's talking about food. And my cup, my cup. Your portion is what you eat. Your cup is that from which you drink. I think the analogy, in my mind, is clear. And, and there are some ideas on what portion and cup might mean otherwise. But David must be saying that God is his food and drink. In other words, God fills me. He satisfies me. These are favorite words of David. He satisfies me. He delights my soul as if sitting at a banquet. Think of Psalm 23. He prepares a table before me. And consider this. If money were no obstacle and you could go out to lunch today anywhere you would want to go, where would you go? Del Frisco's? Bonnell's? Texas Day Brazil? Where do you think you will be most satisfied? Most satisfied above any other place you could go. Spiritually speaking, David said, I go to God. I don't have to think about this. There aren't any options. If I want to be satisfied when I need the joy, the satisfaction that comes, I, I go to God. When, I'm, when my soul is hungry, I'm sensitive to the fact that my sinful heart will go after all the other gods, but no, no, no. I'm going to bend my thinking and remind myself I have no good apart from Yahweh, my Adonai. I choose him. And so in Psalm 63, he says, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there's no water. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David's using banquet terminology to refer to his relationship with the Lord. The Lord is my chosen portion. My chosen portion. I choose God. And later on in chapter 34, David invites us all to join him in feasting on God when he declares, Oh, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. It's an invitation to come and delight in the Lord, to be satisfied in him, to be refreshed by him, to be nourished by him and delighted in him. When you get up in the morning to read your Bible and to pray, what's your motive? Why do you want to do that? Do you do it merely to check off the list that you fulfilled your duty for the day? Or do you come to his word saying, Father, my soul 
It's thirsty. I feel it. Feel it. Feel my soul running to go to work because if I'm productive, that feels good. And sometimes reading your word, it doesn't, doesn't feel good. I don't feel it. I, I, I sometimes when I go to prayer, it doesn't feel very productive. And yet, I know right now, my soul is thirsty. My soul is hungry. And so I, by faith, I run to you. Feed me till I want no more. Feed me until my soul is satisfied. Delight me by your truth and by fellowship with Christ. Oh, taste, help me, Father, to taste and see that the Lord is good, that he is better than any other joy or happiness this world could possibly offer. Do you say, come, O God, by your spirit and your word, and nourish my soul, feed me, satisfy me, and I will praise you with joyful lips? That's what David was saying. And then he says, you hold my lot. In other words, my lot, meaning my life. I think, as you'll see here in a minute, he's using promised land language here. But you hold my lot, my lot, my life is in your hand. And all, all of its circumstances are in your hand. And here he reaches back to the phrase, Yahweh, you are my Adonai. And this is the God who personally gets involved in your life and rules over all of your circumstances, orchestrating them perfectly to maximize the glory of God and the good in his children. Oh, beloved, never let Romans 8.28 become cliche for you. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. This is God's providential hand, his invisible hand behind the scenes, working all things, even when it's discipline. Even when he scourges those whom he loves, he is doing it because he loves you. And it is good for you. Paul says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. That is Yahweh, our Adonai at work. Is the personal covenant God who created you, the one under whose rule you are currently living? Are you living under the rule of God? David said, I love to live under his rule. It's the best life. Doing what God says is always the best life. And there's no need to be afraid. In Psalm 23, he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because he always leads me down the right path. He's the perfect refuge because he is the sovereign king of the cosmos. And then we come to verse 6. If you have eyes to see it, you can detect the underlying promised land language theme here running through these verses. In verse 3, he mentions the land. He's already mentioned the lot, which is smaller portion of the land. He alludes to the divisions of the inheritance now. The inheritance is the land among the tribes of Israel and their individual families. They each receive a lot of the larger inheritance given to the tribe, which collectively makes up, all the tribes make up Israel. And so when we come here, we read verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. 
Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Okay, now remember the context. David's suffering. We don't know why. You remember the Apostle Paul when he was suffering? He didn't tell us what his thorn in the flesh was either. Some, some people think it was his baldness. <laughs> some thought it was uh, an eye injury or, or an oozing eye. Um, other people, and, and, and he doesn't tell us. But David, re- even Paul rejoiced in that suffering, understanding that grace isn't merely undeserved favor. It is also power. It is power to live to the glory of God in the midst of your suffering. And so here is David. We don't know what the situation is, but he looks at his lot. My lot in life, right? What's your lot in life? Um, We know people in our church body whose lot in life is to suffer. Various degrees. I went to see Ruth Brown last week, and it wasn't good. And she's been suffering for so long. That is her lot right now. In the mystery of God's providence, you think of Dana and Rodney, who are probably watching right now, if, if, if online actually works this morning. Uh, they're, they're watching. My wife's at home. There are others who are at home because they can't be here. That is their lot. And you can, you can, al- you can allow that to be the seedbed of complaining and despairing and fretting and worrying. Or you can respond to it like David here. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Yes, there are some things that aren't right right now. Yes, there are some things that are calling me pain, causing me pain. But you know what? My life with God has been fantastic. And even in the suffering, he has revealed to me himself in ways I would have never known. God, don't take this suffering away too soon. I mean, go ahead and take it away whenever you want, but I I want more of you. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Why? Because um, I have no good apart from you. And there has been much good in my life. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, James says, from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. He is the perfect refuge. He is the sovereign king. He is Yahweh, your Adonai. The lines here, again, are boundary lines of his inheritance But David's theme is not about geographical inheritance. It's a spiritual inheritance. When you realize that your allotted state in life comes from God, then you know that your boundaries are perfect. And they are pleasant. And they are your inheritance. And it is beautiful. And other people may look at you and say, how do you... How do you stay joyful in all of this? How can you be happy? How can you minister to other people in the midst of your suffering? I always think of um, David Livingston. After all of his suffering, for years and years and years in the jungle, his wife died, his children died, uh, his, his, his helpers were always stealing from him. And wherever he went, people would come and kill his livestock and take his medicine and 
and, and the slave traders, and, and, and it was, he, he had malaria all the time. He, he, he just struggled and struggled, and, and they sent someone to find him, and they, he took back the story to England, and David kept, just kept suffering and suffering, and when he finally got really bad, sick, he went home to England, and when he got there, they threw him a ticker tape parade and had an audience with the Queen of England, and they talked about this great man who suffered so much. And his response to that was, I have been serving my Lord. I have not for one day of my life suffered. Is it ever suffering to follow my Lord where he leads? No, I have never suffered. This is David's perspective. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Do you struggle with contentment? Fellowship with God is the cure. As the old hymn said, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You've heard the phrase, where there's a will, there's a way. To the contrary, where there's a will, there's a relative, I always say. When it comes to an inheritance, more family relationships are scarred and broken over inheritance issues than hardly anything else. But when your source of contentment is God, who never changes, then you have every reason to be content. You can be content in God rather than those possessions. And, and then it's easy to let go of all that stuff, which is absolutely zero capacity to give you contentment and happiness. David is content because... Like the Old Testament Levites, the Lord is his inheritance. The Levites were the only tribe out of the 12 who didn't get land. And the Lord said, no, 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 no. Because when you were, faith, you were faithful when it really counted, I am your inheritance. Don't worry about the land. I will take care of you. This is David's inheritance. And then verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. David delights in the Lord because he knows that when he needs wisdom for life, the Lord's counsel is always available and it's always perfect. How did the Lord counsel David? He counseled David the same way he counsels us. By his word, through the spirit and through the word. And when he is, he's not reading or studying the word of God, he can still receive counsel from him. Even in the night, even as he's laying in the darkness on his bed, getting ready to drift off to sleep, he said, even in the night, my heart counsels me, instructs me. Why? Because David is also the one who said, I have treasured your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He had it on paper and he had it on his heart. In verse 8, 
may be the most important of all. It tells us what to do so that we too can have this kind of joyful, satisfying happiness of soul in life. He says, verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I love this verse. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will will never be shaken. Listen, you'll never have this kind of relationship with God if your time with God consists only of visiting him in his house once a week. Uh, If you have that kind of relationship with your wife or your husband, you probably won't stay married long. You need time together, which means you're going to have to say no to some things so that you can say yes to the really good stuff, to the best things. You're going to have to say, Martha, no. Jesus, yes. Washing the dishes, not that important. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, it's the one thing necessary. You couldn't build a good marriage if you spent only an hour and a half per week with your spouse, and that's the way it is with God. David said, I have set the Lord always before me. I meet with him in the morning. I talk to him throughout the day. I seek him out when I need wisdom, and when I see something that ascribes glory to his name, I proclaim his excellencies to others, and I fellowship with his people, and then I meditate on his truth in the night watches and entrust my soul to his care. That's how we're to live. That's how we're to live. No wonder his soul could not be shaken. No wonder he had no need to panic about the circumstances of his life. I have set the Lord always before me. He's always there. I don't set him on, on, my, on my shelf in the morning and meet with him and then forget about him. As we tend to do, we get busy. And we forget, you know, I don't, I don't need 25 minutes to spend time with the Lord during the day. As I'm aware of needs and my own needs and other people's needs, I can talk to the Lord in seconds. And then when I can get longer periods of time, I take them in the morning and in the evening and wherever else you can snag some time. But we tend to fill those empty spaces with entertainment and with... Um, with things that profit none at all. I'm not David. I have set the Lord always before me. If you desire to know God the way David knew God, you probably have to say no to some things so that you can say yes to the best things. And by the way, busyness is no excuse. Uh, David, David was king. His... Um, his to-do list was, was probably bigger than mine and yours each day. The fact is, we do what we do because we want what we want. That's what James teaches us. We do what we do because we want what we want. But David said, no, no, no. For me, I have set the Lord always before me. And you can do that. You can spend significant time with him in the morning. You could spend time with him in the evening. You can have, you can have scripture on a card or on your phone uh, that you're meditating on as you drive. Just don't wreck when you're looking at it. And during your breaks, there are little times here and there 
You say, that sounds rather fanatical. Yep. The result of this is, look at verse 9, Therefore, therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. This is wonderful. Beloved, here is the joy you've been looking for. And it's impossible to sufficiently describe to you what this is like with words. I've said this before. If you've never tasted Trader Joe's cookie butter and you asked me, so what does it taste like? I might attempt to describe it in abstract terms. I might say that it's the perfect blend of yummy sweetness ever to be introduced to the culinary world or to your mouth if you should choose to taste it. I might tell you that it's not too sweet, it's got a hint of ginger flavor, and, but that's going to probably turn you off. Listen, if you really want to know what cookie butter tastes like, you've got to scoop some out and put it on your tongue. And if you don't get it, then I can't help you. This is what David continually says throughout the Psalms. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You have to engage. You have to meet with him. You have to say, Lord, I'm not used to this. I I haven't made a, a pattern like this in my life. You know, it just hasn't been a habit in my life. And Lord, I'm here. Help me. Help my unbelief. Help my laziness. Help my distractibility. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You must fly to God yourself and seek him for refuge as David did. Only then will you know the means. You'll know what it means when David says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. True and lasting satisfaction, contentment, joy in this life can be yours regardless of your circumstances. Setting the Lord continually before him is David's secret to joy in his personal life. He didn't get joy. His joy, his source of joy wasn't being king. He knew what it was like to not be king. King and then not king and then king again. But there's more. He also reveals something, not only of this life, and this is verse 1 through 9, was God promise of joy in this life. And then David gets thinking about the life to come the joy he anticipates in the life to come. Why does David say in verses 9 to 10 that even his flesh dwells secure? Answer, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is the Jewish term for the grave. You get thinking about dying and having, having you know, people throw you into a, in a hole in the ground and, and that, can, that can make you crazy. But David says, look, I don't have any fear of that. I don't have any fear of that. That's not where I'm going to end up. Lord, you've told me. You've told me. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or allow your Holy One to see corruption. David knew that when his flesh, his body died, he would be put in the ground. But because of his miraculous and marvelous relationship that he had with Yahweh, my Adonai, the grave would not be the end. 
You see, David understood the Old Testament doctrine of resurrection. Job understood the Old Testament doctrine of resurrection. Isaiah understood the Old Testament doctrine of resurrection. That's why even the Pharisees in Jesus' day believed in resurrection. It was the Sadducees who didn't believe, and that's why you were sad. You see? He believed the truth that for God's people, death is merely a door to life. As Paul explains later on, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Present with the Lord. And so you see, to the contrary, contrary to what the world believes about Christianity, living under the loving, sovereign rule of God is not a path to death. It's not a path to the death of your will. It's not a path to the death of your joy. It's not a path to the death of your happiness. It's not a, 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 a death uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the path of exhilaration in this life. Rather, it is, it is the path of life. It is the path to life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Back in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards wrote these words. The enjoyment of God, I believe he was 18 when he wrote this. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are all but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams. God is the sun. These are but streams. God is the ocean. David is saying, this is the life of one who knows God and walks with him as a lifestyle. In this life, God will be your refuge, your satisfaction, your happiness, your joy, your wisdom, your security, your peace, your very great reward. And then in the life to come, fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Think of five seconds in your life where you experience the most joy, satisfaction, And then think this, that in the, after you die, when you come into the presence of God, you will experience better than that for eternity. These are mere shadows. Every pleasure in this life is only a shadow of the glory and the goodness we will experience in that world. The paltry offers of the world are nothing compared to this. And by the way, all of this is yours because of Jesus. You say, where do you find that in the text? That's a good question. And uh, the reality is, I don't find it in this text. But Peter did. <laughs> and so we, I know our time is short, but turn with me to, to in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, 
Here's the argument for why the people should accept the fact that Jesus is their living Messiah. In Acts 2, Peter explains, and here we are starting with verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Listen, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And then he says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. His point there is David went into the grave and his body experienced corruption. Must be talking about somebody else. Being therefore a prophet, he goes on, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." There is an already and a not yet about this passage. David thought for sure he was talking about himself, and yet the Holy Spirit was using him prophetically to prophesy one who would come and be thrown in the grave and not decompose, but be raised to life. This is our Savior. This is Jesus. And so let me make this clear. If you don't know God this way, if all of your sins have not been forgiven in Christ, if you have not come to Christ and say, God, I have nothing by which to commend myself to you. The only thing I have to offer you is my sin. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. If you have not and will not approach God in that manner, this joy is not for you. And the sorrows as you pursue life and happiness and other gods, will only multiply. It is God's word. But beloved, it doesn't have to be that way. My friend, it doesn't have to be that way for you. Why does God reveal these things? So that you will accept them. You will internalize them. You will eat them and drink them and make them a part of who you are by his grace, by his power, and for his glory. Listen, there is no joy on earth like the joy that flows from the fountain of relationship with God in Christ. Listen to me. This is the joy you've been looking for. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you didn't and you don't treat us like slaves. You treat us like your children. And like we, with our children, we long for them to be happy. And so we provide for them, and we offer ourselves to them. 
And yet, Father, even to the degree that we experience happiness in our home, in our, in our marriages, it's, we know it's only a shadow of the joy that is set before us when we see Jesus face to face. And that is his promise. I pray now, Father, that your spirit, that your spirit would so move in someone's heart, even as I speak, that you would bring them to repentance. And right now, in their heart of hearts, they would cry to you, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm so sick of living my own way. It's a disaster. Change me. Save me. Take my life and do with it as you please. I am yours. You are my Jehovah Adonai. Will you accept me? Will you make me your own? Will you change me by your grace and for your glory? Oh, Father, please save some today. We pray it in Jesus' name.